Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. My life mission would be to solve immigration for and fund a thousand of the next, you know, Steve Jobs of the world to create their thing. And I think it'll help save the Earth's climate and create jobs and a wonderful opportunity for everybody. And I would be really happy if immigration law got fixed such that you had like a, a blockchain wallet and it was like, boop, 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 boop. Oh, we see your education, your experience, your blah, 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 blah. Admitted, you know, that would be incredible, right? That's how this should work one day. So I would be really happy if the system got fixed and my law firm had to go away. I'm sure I would find something else to do to be able to help. Joining me in the deep end today is Sophie Alcorn. Sophie is the founder of Alcorn, a Silicon Valley immigration law firm that helps tech talent immigrate to the United States. She also hosts the podcast Immigration Law for Tech Startups and is the author of TechCrunch's weekly immigration advice column, Dear Sophie. Continuing with our series on the meta problem of helping people start more companies, we talk with Sophie in order to understand why immigration is a bottleneck for company creation and what founders, investors, and policymakers can do about it. Sophie Alcorn, welcome to The Deep End. Hi, Marshall. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to speak with you. So you're joining us to discuss immigration, founders, startups, tech companies, all that great stuff. We're doing this as part of a broad series where we're focused on meta problems that could serve as blockers or impediments to startup and company creation, because that's obviously what OnDeck is trying to do here. So let's just start by getting both a introduction to you in your own words. I'll obviously do one in the intro, but it's better when people hear it from themselves. And then two, what your broad perspective on the topic of immigration as a blocker to startups and company creation are. Great. So by way of background, I am a leading startup immigration lawyer for people who want to live and work legally in the United States while they build their companies. I'm the founder of Alcorn Immigration Law, premier law firm for startup immigration, both early stage for founders from that zero to one looking for product market fit, and also the one to N hyper growth scaling for teams as you know, engineers and other professionals need to get hired to help grow a company in the United States. The reason I got into this was because my dad was an immigration lawyer and have an extensive history of practicing immigration law. I'm a certified specialist by the State Bar of California Board of Legal Specialization in Immigration and Nationality Law. I have to say the whole thing. And my mom's from Germany. I have other family members from Mexico. And I was a Stanford student in 2001 when everybody said that tech was dead. And then Steve Jobs was my graduation speaker in 2005. And I sort of had this idea that I would somehow be a fuzzy to help techies, which is like the Stanford lingo for humanities and sciences. And just really wanted to get into the Silicon Valley ecosystem. And in 2015, I was um, a stay-at-home mom to two young kids, and all my friends at the park were wives of guys in tech who weren't allowed to work, even though they were brilliant professionals. 
And they'd come from all around the world to support their husbands, to start tech companies, and none of them could work. And they'd all given up their careers. And they were really frustrated by the status quo of the immigration services that they could access, even at these like upper echelons of the tech elite. So I started my law firm. We've grown. We have a team of about 20. We've helped thousands of people from around the world. And I've uh, parlayed that into also writing a TechCrunch column uh, for immigration education for founders that comes out every Wednesday called Dear Sophie. And then I have a podcast called Immigration Law for Tech Startups. That's awesome. And we'll definitely uh, be sure to shout that out. So because I have had the privilege of being born in the United States, I know basically nothing about this topic. So I'll just kind of do it starting from the bottom and we'll get more complicated as we go. So let's just ask the the opening question. Let's say I am an ambitious prospective founder who who's either in the US, let's say getting my bachelor's degree, or I'm in my home country. How easy is it for me if I have, let's say, good idea, ambitions to actually immigrate and work here? It's really, really, really hard if you know nothing and you're starting from scratch. So the U.S. immigration system has really old laws that were written for a society that existed 50 to 70 years ago before the Internet. The processing times are super slow. The credentials to qualify for the existing categories get higher. The bar moves higher with every successive presidential administration and all the additional new requirements that they layer on to cater to the public and how immigration is perceived in the media. And there are backlogs, potentially multi-year backlogs that you can find yourself in just to even visit the United States for the first time. Layered on top of that are there are very strict categories for who qualifies in and in order to do what type of work. So even though both the Trump and Biden administrations actually agree with each other that America should recruit top global STEM talent for national security purposes, our immigration system has not yet caught up with that. So I got to help Representative Wofgren uh, write the LIKE Act, which is a startup visa that got passed by the House. But, you know, once again, got resistance in the Senate. So basically, the way it works is for that Stanford, Harvard, MIT student who's, um, you know, hacking at night with their friends in the dorm room while they're taking classes and they have this really great idea, really hard for them because if they tell their school they're working on a company, like they could get for breaking the immigration rules that say they're not supposed to work. And for the person like dreaming in their basement, trying to like hack and code on the fill in the blank latest technology, it was Web3, now it's AI, whatever it is. Um, they're like in their basement in Iran or maybe Ukraine, right? Um, or maybe they're fortunate enough to be in Sweden. But even if you have a peaceful life in Sweden with great healthcare and everything, the market access isn't the same. And so layer on the political instability. Um, a lot of people live in countries where even if they have a great idea that they know will work, there's no direct connection that if I do, if I, with X inputs, there will be Y outputs. There's so much like corruption in the country or other factors that like, just because you do a great job and have a brilliant idea and have funding doesn't necessarily mean you can succeed. So the stakes are really high and 
then there's this like other thing of really creative, brilliant people who always try to follow the rules and do everything right get super bogged down and traumatized by going through the U.S. immigration system, which really dampens their creativity, making it hard to innovate and create. So for all of this, we try to help usher people through as quickly and gently as possible to get to the other side, to have that, that immigration freedom. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about a prospective founder, Stanford, MIT, Harvard, like what is the actual like general profile? I guess it's probably the most diverse profile of all time when we're actually talking about immigration. But what is just sort of like the range of different places? Because let me put it this way. Um, I come from the policy space. And I think if this issue were as simple as there are X number of limited people at Stanford, Harvard, MIT who want to found companies, it probably would have gotten resolved 10 or 15 years ago. So like, what's the full scale? Or maybe that's not true. That's just my general inclination. What's the full scale of how like diverse like these different categories look like? Oh, it's all over. The way I think about it, I guess it's like a top top, top down or bottom up perspective. Like the way I see it, there's like, you know, 8 billion people in the world. 1% have that Da Vinci founder gene and they wish they could be startup founders. And so then you like have to assume like Zimbabwe has that 1% and Nepal does and Venezuela does, right? But then So like a tiny scintilla of that fraction actually has the means, the opportunity, the the blessing, the privilege, whatever access to the U.S. to get started as a country. If you want to think about it from like a, a policy perspective, we're barely scratching the surface of the global talent that would love to be part of this ecosystem and create. But, um, my clients are every age, race, national origin, gender, whatever, you know, I have like the, you know, five 19 year olds from Canada who are all working on this thing. And then I've got like the 52 year old neuroscientist lady from Egypt and like, they're all aspiring founders regardless. Right. So it's, it's, it's really inspiring when I get to see how many people get lit up by that dream of, of making it in the United States, whether they're not yet here or already here in some some capacity. As we're revisiting big narratives since March 2020, remote work is definitely one of them. How has remote work changed, A, like the internal dynamics? So for example, if you're describing that Stanford junior, let's say, who can't work, what if they're working on at a remote company? Um, what if they have a type of job where they could have done that job while still maybe based in Canada or India or the United Kingdom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How has remote work both just changed like the dynamics of actual prospective immigrants, but B, how has it maybe unblocked the issue in the sense that like, hey, like you could found something, you could build a global team. Like maybe you do want to be in the US at a permanent level, but it's not quite the same thing as it was maybe let's say in 2016. Oh, that's such a big question. It's wonderful. My life mission would be to solve immigration for and fund a thousand of the next, you know, Steve Jobs of the world to create their thing. And I think it'll help save the Earth's climate and create jobs and a wonderful opportunity for everybody. And I would be really happy if immigration law got fixed such that you had like a, a blockchain wallet and it was like, boop, 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 boop. Oh, we see your education, your experience, your blah, 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 blah. Admitted. You know, that would be incredible, right? That's how this should work one day. So I would be really happy if the system got fixed and my law firm had to go away. I'm sure I would find something else to do to be able to help people. 
So that being said, in the pandemic, I was like, oh my God, remote work is here. We just accelerated decades. VCs aren't going to care if anybody's in the United States anymore. Who's going to need immigration ever again? We're all just going to work from home. And that happened a little bit. And a lot of people left Silicon Valley. I live in Palo Alto now. And so it's been kind of quiet in a certain sense. But I am seeing that there are certain things that cannot be done remotely. The inspiration of co-founder, I mean, they call it like co-founder dating, but like hanging out with your co-founders because you're friends and you stay up all night talking and then you get this amazing inspiration because this idea that you had for some random thing that you were like bantering about was like, oh, wait, there's a kernel of something in there. That's so different than a structured Zoom meeting where everybody's head is in a box. And working asynchronously is great and really powerful, especially when you need to get like focused, independent work done. But it's it can be slow and it can be hard to bring a team together. So um, we just got a visa for um, like a, a founder from Spain. And let's just say they're in San Francisco and the it got approved finally after years. And the the co-founder who was American was like, hey, man, I didn't want to like say this to you, but I was really worried you're going to have to go back to Spain. And like, it's been so good vibing with you and the ideas and the output that we've been able to create being together. I was really worried that this company wouldn't be able to keep moving forward if you had to leave. There's also cohorts, delegations of startups coming. I just spoke to a group from Austria this morning. I'm speaking to a Swiss, Switzerland group in San Francisco at the consulate this week. Kind of like travel is back in and foreign startups are interested in U.S. market access. There's also a saying where like, why should you come to Silicon Valley? Well, it's because this is the greatest concentration of experienced product managers who have been in scaling companies. But then on the other hand, there's a trend for like solo unicorn founders, like that's going to happen one day, right? So it's like zero to one founder inspiration, creativity. You need peacefulness, prosperity, stability to be creative. And then for scaling, I think it just depends on your model. But anyway, we still need to be in the same place. The U.S. is one of the best places to be. And we've seen some companies just flip the model. Like everybody works from home. We'll get you a visa to work from home. And then once every quarter, we'll come together for an onsite in a cool U.S. location to all hack for a week together. So there's different models. It's very creative now. It's just so interesting because it seems that the work you're doing, anything related to immigration, is just at the center of the debate over whether everything is just ultimately on the, in the cloud, whether ultimately like digital can be just a total substitute. And I think the clear, not just anecdotal, like anecdotal in your example, but obviously we could just look at the numbers, is that clearly land, place, those things still just matter. And it's the question, how do you merge those together? So most people actually, I've yet to meet anyone in the broader Silicon Valley tech space who's happy with the immigration status quo. So you are both interested in policy. That's why you're you know, writing um, legislation with a member of Congress, but you're also helping people at a tactical level with their immigration issues at the law firm. Is the current broken status quo about there being a hard limit of the number of founders who could come in? Or at a practical level, is the problem that there are just always founders who don't know about this program or that program? And if we just gave you a bunch of money, you could actually deal with a lot of the bottleneck. How do you think? And I, and I guess it's probably not an either or, but how do you think about those two things balancing against each other? 
Yeah. So when I started my law firm, I thought, okay, well, if I could simply educate everybody about the 15 to 20 categories of visas and green cards that are relevant for startups, I could just solve it for everybody. Because there's these, yeah, there isn't a startup visa, but there's, you know, everybody's heard about H-1B working visas or O-1 like Einstein visas or getting a green card. Like those are very common things that you hear about. And there are ways to like fit square pegs into round holes with startups for this investor visa or this like multinational manager intercompany transferee visa. And it's like a little weird because the government is used to like brick and mortar businesses or corporations. So we have to do a little more legwork to educate the government on why this person meets the qualifications for this role at this company. Yeah, it's a little bit about numbers um, for H-1B professional work visas and especially People born in India or China, the whole process can be really suffocating because let's say like you got a PhD, like first you paid full tuition to get your bachelor's degree and master's degree in the U.S. And then you got a PhD and you've been working really hard at a bunch of fang companies and you've been contributing all this brilliant stuff. If you were born in India, you might, the the Cato Institute, I haven't seen a new statistic on this, but the most recent one is from Before the pandemic, the Cato Institute estimated that if you were born in India and you were waiting for a green card in the category for people with advanced degrees um, or in the national interest, it's EB2, that your wait time for your turn in line to apply for a green card would be 150 years. So we're talking about 150 year timeline. And this is where I don't, I viscerally just don't understand as a, you know, native born American citizen. During that 150 year process, are you are you stuck in India? Are you stuck? Are you in America in a state of limbo? Yeah. Like, that's what does the that thing. look like? First of all, it raises other questions like, do we increase human lifespans that much? And is your brain uploaded to the cloud and are brains in the cloud subject to immigration rules? I don't know. But most of the people in that situation have been in the H-1B lottery every year, multiple times. Like you go to college, you get a corporate job, they put you in this lottery every year, you have like a 20 to 30 percent chance of being selected any given year. You hope that you get selected before the end of your student work permits is up. And then you're like in this H-1B ball and chain thing where you have to work for an H-1B sponsoring company and you hope that they do the green card for you. And then you're allowed to get H-1B extensions beyond the initial six years if you've reached certain milestones in the green card process. So with the layoffs in the fall and in winter, there are a ton of people who have just been perpetually on H-1Bs, even though they've been in the U.S. for like 10, 15, 20 years. They are married. They have U.S. citizen children. They pay taxes. They make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year working at big tech companies. They volunteer. They're philanthropists. Like they contribute so much, but they're still in this ball and chain. And then they have all of these ideas bubbling up of like, oh, I wish I could launch this company. Oh, this is a great idea. I wish I could spin out this startup. Um, And so it becomes very tricky for them. So numbers is part of it with the H-1B lottery. That's definitely a limiting factor. These like this crazy antiquated system where we like set up the rules in the 1960s and push go and then the world changed. And now we're still living in that old system with old rules with a lot of backlogs. That's a problem with immigration. There's a lot of reasons for why the system is broken and a lot of people who are stuck in it. But, But they don't have to be. And that's like the message that I try to tell people when I have the chance to talk to them. Like, you can 
basically bootstrapped your way to becoming qualified for an O-1 visa for extraordinary ability. There's no annual limit. There's no minimum salary. You can be the CEO. We can set it up with agents so that you can work for multiple jobs and companies at the same time. Like those are really big perks for work visas. And you don't even have to have legal work authorization to qualify. Like if you're a student who can't work and you're in the United States, you could still do everything it takes without working in an unauthorized manner to build up your portfolio of accomplishments to qualify for an O-1 visa for extraordinary ability. So like, I just want people to know that that's possible. It, it's kind of funny. Um, I've heard of O-1 visas because that's what a lot of models use. Isn't that the yeah. one yeah, models use? Like, Because you hang out with all the models, Marshall. Uh, no, I, I do not. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a humble podcaster in Austin, Texas. We're not really the model model city. Um, you never but, know what's next. South by Southwest should be happening soon, right? It's actually not. It's actually not incorrect. So I'll hold. I'll hold my word. But I think the. I think the question I'm kind of wondering is, just explain to us like what the O1 visa is, because what you're basically you're telling me something interesting here, which is there's actually this straightforward process. Everyone knows that the H1B visa process is kind of a shit show. That's like yep. a generically accepted on all levels, like talking point. But you're making the O-1 visa thing seem very straightforward. Just kind of explain more about that. There's a lot of pathways that are very straightforward. The O-1 yeah. for most people from most countries is most straightforward. And you have to show that you are in the top of your subfield in a country to qualify. You do not need a Nobel Prize. So you could be the best healthcare IOT founder in Italy, and you could qualify based on that. And you would have to show three of the eight criteria. And now granted, this is all paper-based. We print out like 400, 600, 800 pages of evidence about people when we mail this thing in by snail mail. Um, you do need a pen to sign the, pa the papers. That can be a stumbling block for some founders. They don't have pens or printers anymore. Mm. But there's, there's eight categories. You need three of them. And they could be things like, have you won any professional awards? So like pitch competition or a hackathon or getting on deck to invest in you or uh, like a big name VC. Um, have you been in any associations that are hard to get into for founders like Founders Network or Forbes Council or Y Combinator Batch or Techstars or On Deck or whatever? Quick question. A, this seems so inefficient because think of everything you just kind of listed out. For each thing you listed from, from On Deck to, to YC to Forbes Council, like we're talking like sub four or 5% acceptance rates. And I think that would be fine if this were something like, let's say athletics, where there actually are just like probably like a set number of like 19 to 21 year olds who can run the 100 meter like race effectively. There probably is like a hard limit, but I think what's exciting about tech and like founders and startups is that it's positive sum, there's a lot of different things, different combinations. Can you just kind of reflect on that? It's, like, it's actually like really depressing when you say, oh yeah, all you have to do is, you know, get into YC and then, you know, you slap an on deck and then a Forbes council, you got three for eight, you're good to go. I don't think, I, I, I don't feel as if that person is struggling to with their immigration. And maybe they are, which would be even another level of crazy. But I just, that's my reaction. Right. And then you're asking this person who's still trying to get product market fit who's working relentlessly on their product while pitching investors, who's also stressed about their visa to be succeeding from a marketing perspective in a way to rack up these accomplishments. 
it's really hard. Sometimes people get super bogged down in imposter syndrome and procrastination and fear. And that's like one of the biggest impediments because like I see people, I know they're brilliant. I know they're accomplished in their own right. And we have to map out their individual path to all of this, but it takes a ton of work and time and commitment to yourself. And then it like raises all these existential questions of like, what if I fail? What does it mean about my life? What if I succeed? What does it mean about my life? Right? Like people can get really deep in all of this, but you're right. And, and one of the reasons I love working with founders that I have this like unusual law practice is because I love the positive sum games. I love the things where when we come together, like two plus two can equal five and it's an infinite game and we can change the rules and we can co-create. Like I love that stuff. And law and immigration, it's very yes or no, ones and zeros, zero sum. Did you get into the United States? Did you not get into the United States? It's a very suffocating system for a lot of people. So I just have to tell people, like, you have to be strong. You have to believe in yourself. You have to commit to this. If you, if you want to do it, it's not just that you're, like, hiring lawyers to fill out some forms for you or something. Like, you have to commit to yourself for doing this roadmap of what it takes. And it's, and it's hard. And it has like weird byproducts for the U.S. Like, well, foreign founders have, you know, created over half of unicorns because they have to have grit and determination to survive the system. So I would rather, you know, have more people be able to start companies that'll change the world and create jobs. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there, there have to be better ways of getting there. Another, oh, yeah. another question that came to mind, because I, I love how the, the example you used was like a internet of things. Um, expert or accomplishment person. I think Internet of Things as like a narrative that people are interested in is kind of like three or four or five or even six or seven years out of date. But if we're talking about things like yeah. AI, Web3, IoT, yeah, basically any tech topic you could imagine. I'm just thinking of like, let's say peak Web3 boom. I love a bunch of people who are hanging out in Williamsburg and Brooklyn who, I mean, yeah. technically speaking, you know, they, they, they had companies, but I wouldn't describe them as like web three, like experts or like top percenters, especially based on where their companies and their efforts are now. So how would you assess that? Like, would, would that be a thing? I could, could, could I go back to July, 2021 and like put together a packet? Let's say I'm like Marshall from West Africa and Marshall was like a web three performer. That just seems so weird because for, and this is why like, I'm kind yeah, of going And if it, Marshall like, was applying now in 2023 with the really cool web three monkey JPEGs of summer 2022 or something like, you could, like the government doesn't know that nobody cares about Web3 anymore. They would be like, oh yes, Web3, look, he meets the three of the eight. It's important. Like, let's let him in. He's going to create jobs. I feel like this is why the like national security related ones, like um, like the semiconductors and like those ones are a little more straightforward because that's a little, I, I feel like the more digital something is, I don't want to say foofy because all these categories we listed are serious. That seems to make a, a huge difference. I want you to, from scratch, construct a like best case scenario. So Marshall from West Africa, let's assume I'm still in high school. So I'm thinking about getting into an American university or like working for an American company. From 15 onwards, what would you have me do so that understanding that there's a combination of like luck and like circumstance and maybe COVID happens, which I'm sure totally shifted like immigration and college acceptance. Like what's basically a scenario you could plot out that other people could follow or model so that I get 80% of it right. And then there's 20% of circumstance. 
and I'm able to like get an O-1 visa. I'm going to give a very specific version for Marshall from West Africa, and that's going to be different for whatever, Carolyn from Australia or Svetlana from Russia, because it depends on details. But let's imagine you are Marshall, you're growing up in Ghana in Accra, and you're going to some sort of STEM-based high school that your family can afford for you to go to, and you're learning coding skills, and you have access to like Unity, and you're creating gaming whatever things on on the side for fun. So I would say that, you know, Marshall, you need to do two things. You need to go in parallel in two ways. You need to excel in academics and try to get into the best college possible. And in parallel, you need to try to build a startup now and make that successful to build up your track record for potential visas in the future. And so, Marshall, if you can get to college in the United States, that's great. You can rack up a bunch more accomplishments when you're enrolled in school. And then when you're on your work permit, STEM OPT or STEM OPT, you can like bypass the corporate job thing and you can just apply for an O-1 and even a green card for yourself based on your professional and academic accomplishments before you even graduate from college. And then meanwhile, if you can't get to um, MIT from Ghana or whatever, like maybe um, maybe you can move to Nigeria. There's an amazing startup scene there. Maybe your startup will have start having some traction. Maybe you can create a Nigerian office and get investment from Nigeria. Maybe that company can transfer you to an Austin office in the future as a, a professional. Maybe there are U.S. State Department investment venture connection bridge programs that your home country's consulate can access you to. So you can do like competitions for Ghanaian or Nigerian startups that U.S. investors care about. Or maybe you're going to maybe it's easier to move to London first. And so you end up doing that. Maybe you go to college in London and then you get your master's degree in the U.S. There's a lot of ways to do it. And meanwhile, if your startup takes off in Ghana and you don't even need to go to college and you're like a multi-bazillionaire and you have this amazing AI company that brings jobs to people all across Africa or something, you know, that that could be enough to get an, an O-1 or something and just move to the U.S. and run your company from here one day. So there's a lot of possibilities. But you can see how it's like this choose your own adventure and you kind of want to maximize for both like academic success as like the, the baseline, but also like take some of those bets for wins with, you know, outsized returns from a startup angle. You don't need to go to college to create a startup. So like just start if that's what you love doing. When you were talking about how like, you know, if you could, you would you know, invest in thousand founders and blah, 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 blah. Why hasn't someone, because you're talking about Forbes, you're talking about OnDeck, you're talking about YC, like why hasn't someone created an organization or maybe even like a firm that would very aggressively like certify and rank and judge people? You could create your own version of like the Intel Science Fair. You could have like pitch competitions. Then maybe you like take equity and you invest, like, why doesn't, if does that exist? And if it doesn't exist, why doesn't that exist? Funny you should mention that, Marshall. I am currently, uh, I, I'm currently setting that up. So, and I have interested investors approaching me and we're setting up the legal framework for that because really you can solve all of this with money. Like I got so frustrated when the law 
didn't get changed again and again. And that's been the case since September 11th with immigration Mm. reform. But I think that using the existing structures with enough capital, legitimate employment opportunities, qualifying, compliant programs in the business sector that, you know, transparently and validly meet the government requirements, you can set up this whole global pipeline to help anybody with this dream and a little bit of traction or potential commitment, right, to be able to navigate this. So I'm, I'm actually super thrilled and excited about this possibility. I think it could really help a lot of people. Yeah, I know. And it's, and, you know, we didn't coordinate beforehand. So um, it's cool that. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, seriously, because I, th- I think it's a good, I think it's a good part of the, the pitch where all you had to do is articulate these general realities, which is that you've had this ad hoc system where Forbes is good enough. And then like, this isn't quite what YC and OnDeck are doing, but they're like legitimate enough. You could do it that you could say, like, wait, what if we just purpose built that style of thing? It, it's cool to see that could come together and you have plans there. Big final question. We just discussed how starting early, being focused, understanding that there's a, I don't want to say choose your own adventure because that makes this sound fun. And this is the opposite of fun in every single reality, but there there, there are a variety I mean, it of- can be fun if you want it to be. It could see it like a giant game, you know? Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's probably, yeah, there, there, there's maybe a personality um, who- just as there are personalities that, that like Excel spreadsheets, there could be a personality who enjoys the cockamamie U.S. immigration system. You just gave me another uh, idea, which is like a game startup where at the end you end up with like a real visa, but you're like using your avatar to go through these levels and collect points and stuff. And there is a Web3 angle like, we could we could knock in there. You should chat with me yeah. after we get off the <laughs> podcast. Um, gosh, that, it's, there's this kind of thing where, once again, I'm non-technical. I'm I'm. I'm even fuzzier than you are in the Stanford sense because uh, I'm just a podcaster and don't have a lot of degree. You just kind of realize that there's a way that you could articulate ideas that is not like coherent, but you could tell a coherent story. We can tell a coherent story of our Web3 powered gaming startup that uses AI to get immigrant founders into America. And then we're always, we're on the Today Show within two weeks um, is, an, is, is a directionally accurate bet here. But so here's, here's the big final question then. Where does everything we've described leave policymakers? Because if we're starting the episode by saying that there's a bottleneck, we've described how West African Marshall, Australian Caroline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, could try to navigate that. What should a policymaker do about everything we've just described? Should there not be 20 different categories? Because that seems like hyper confusing. What are the next steps for someone who's like policy minded who's thinking about it? Because by the way, I'm just, I'm just saying this to you because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a think tank fellow in DC too. So like, I'm just like thinking this is my actual area. So like, what should I be thinking about as someone who wants to support founders and think startups are, are a good thing? Oh, amazing. I love this intersection of policy and startups. And I love that you're asking these questions. Thank you. It's so exciting. Um, one idea is you could just have like a AdWords auction style system where immigration is just pay to play. And then Americans get a payout, you know, every year from all the immigrant fees that have been collected. And it's just supply and demand and we can set the limits and whoever wants it can get it. And you can pay for somebody else's ticket. Like that's one very simple economic solution. Canada has a points-based system. But if there's just like one thing that we needed to do now with our existing system and politics and the way D.C. 
seems to work. It's really disambiguating the types of immigration. Typically with politics, why can't we have a start a visa? Well, it's not fair to the refugees and the children who are undocumented. And there's this like very established alliance of all of the immigration stakeholders who have been holding tight to each other for the last 20 years. And they're so worried that if one immigration change happens for one subgroup, that everybody else is going to get left behind and change for their group won't happen. But by keeping everything blocked together in this giant, you know, mass that's unsolvable, nothing moves and, and this backlog accretes. And so if we just break it down and we're like, okay, this is the year where we're going to fix the U.S. recruiting top global talent from a national security perspective and startups are part of that. And we get that functioning, right? Now we have more jobs, more abundance, more ability to take in refugees or more potential to create training programs for, you know, migrant workers who want to upskill or something. So there's different reasons we like immigration. We are greedy and selfish and we want more money, right? That's one of them. That's very different than we feel bad for people who have lost their home, right? Or we want families to be reunited. So if there's any way to just separate these from each other so that we can think more clearly about each of them individually and then usher them through the political process one at a time, that would be amazing. Specifically for tech, I think that if Republican senators got a sense of like, oh, these 15 startups want to come to my state and look how many jobs they would create, you know, maybe that would incentivize them more to uh, care about this as well. So I would love to have further conversations with you about this, Marshall. Thank you for your interest in it. I think it's great. No, and that's exactly what we're looking to do with this conversation. It's a good mix of news that you could very actually and actively use with also like there's a bigger idea that folks at different intersections need to consider. So here's the final, final, final question. Where should folks go next beyond your firm, other organizations, ideas, institutions, people people should look into? Um, would love to close on that thought. Wonderful. There are a lot of resources to help immigrants in the startup space if you are outside of the United States. Of course, there are tons of authors and thought leaders and, and podcasters like yourself putting out incredible information. Also, you know, don't look over the U.S. government resources in your home country for like seeding local startup ecosystems as a stepping stone. There are a couple of early VCs that are already looking on uh, looking at funding immigrants. One of the issues with the VC model is, right, like you want or an accelerator is you want like 200 or 300 applicants to, you know, select the top 10 companies. So they're definitely not accessible to all, but there are already a few immigration specific investors. There's government exchange programs, but you want to be very careful if you ever accept a J-1 exchange visitor visa, such as a Fulbright scholarship. Um, you might be like banned from the U.S. for two years after because they want you to take your knowledge back to your home country. So you just you have to be very careful. You need to learn a lot and you need to be very strategic. And one of the, the things that um, can be hard for people to do when they're scared is like admit their goal. But all of this is so much easier if you can just be clear with yourself, even if it doesn't end up happening, but just to be able to put a stake in the ground and say, my goal is that in five years, I'm going to have a green card in the United States and I'm going to be living in Miami. 
well, that's something to work with. Now we can like chart multiple mm-hmm. paths to get there. But if you're just like, I don't know, I want to raise money and I want to be there one day, that's a lot harder to work with. So doing that deep work of like admitting your dream, which is really hard and scary is one of the first steps. Great advice. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us on The Deep End. Thank you, Marshall. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us in The Deep End. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.